1: is a calling I am honored and eager to answer.
0: So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45.
1: And welcome back to Clean Up on Aisle Forty Five, Episode Number Six. I'm Andrew Torres, and I'm Ag.
0: How are you, Andrew?
1: I am fantastic. How are you doing?
0: Oh, I'm good. I'm really good. Today was a today was Christmas for me.
1: <laughs> and why he asks, giving her an opening, was today Christmas for you?
0: Well, because the Supreme Court of the United States, the big one, the one where Trump nominated three judges, yeah, uh, uh, decided to not hear. The round two of Mazar's case, uh, (laughs) subpoena case that that Cy Vance filed. Now, this isn't the Mazar's case that the House filed, but the one that uh, the Manhattan District Attorney filed. And in not hearing and refusing to hear that case, that means the lower court ruling stands, which means Mazar's has to fork it over.
1: Yeah, that is exactly right. I suspected we might talk about that a little bit. But uh, but before we dive into that, I I just want to share for, for, for those listeners that, that missed it. We had our first live Patreon hangout and Q&A last Friday over Zoom. We went for over an hour. We answered the questions that people submitted and voted on. And then our fans stayed on the line for a like. I they could still be there, as far as I know, right? Like <laughs> it
0: was at least it was at least two hours because when I started my Zoom happy hour for the Daily Beans, I had to end the other meeting. It was still going on. So. <laughs> I I love that. That was super cool. Yeah, that's that's why because I have the one Zoom account and come for Pacific time on Fridays. Uh, I have to I have to start that second show.
1: Yeah. Um. I it I. It's a little different than the way we do it on Opening Arguments. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was really, really, really cool. So um, both the video of that and the audio are up on the Patreon feed over patreon.com slash aisle45pod. And if you support the show at any level, you'll get that first Q&A. It's supposed to be a $2 perk, but you know we wanted to share it with anybody who's just uh, given us a buck.
0: Yep. Absolutely. And uh, I, I honestly had a really good time. And you can also join us uh you can join andrew and me on the stereo app which uh (laughs) happens every tuesday at 5 p.m pacific 8 eastern that's also a load of fun and that's for the public so you can join that on the public
1: yeah yeah anybody can do that so um all right so we ready to tackle mazars
0: we are and a little bit earlier i asked you please send me a copy of the original subpoena i was having a hard time finding it buried in all the news today and there is a very specific reason I wanted okay. to see the copy of that subpoena. Now we know that Vance has been taking, has been investigating this for two years ish, right? He's this thing has been in court for a long time. And if you want to uh, set this up, um, Andrew, and talk about the, you know, the the history of the Mazar subpoena um, as an intro to what I'm about to. Uh, Postulate. I'm about to put some beans on something with with, uh, what kind of documents Cy Vance is after, because while uh, Trump's tax returns, personal and business, are included in that subpoena, I don't think that's what he was after.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Well, then I'm going to blaze quickly through the background because I'm dying to know what that is. So um, here's the story. Early twenty nineteen, Cyrus Vance, district attorney for Manhattan uh, impaneled a grand jury in Manhattan. Um, and they issued a subpoena to Mazars USA. That's the accounting firm that handles Trump's taxes. They were for eight years of Trump's personal and corporate tax returns and other financial records. And I guess we're going to get the, the drill down from AG with respect to that. So 2011 to the present. So it's now nine years, right? Um, Grand juries, as as everybody listening to the show already knows, are confidential. So we, we don't know the full scope of what they're looking at. But given that this has been litigated and given some of the things that Vance has said publicly in court, right, in defending the subpoena, we know that at minimum the office was examining potential state insurance, tax and bank fraud charges. And that's always been my assumption. Um a story broke in late December in The New York Times that Vance and his office had interviewed several Deutsche Bank, that's Trump's bank, and Aon, that's Trump's insurer, uh, employees. So I, it's still kind of a black box, uh, but um, but but that's that's how this began. Even though the subpoena was addressed to Mazars, uh, Mazars, and this is a very common thing to, to do. Uh, Mazars basically said, we'll do whatever the court tells us to do. Trump intervened, asserted executive privilege. Uh, you said, we said, everybody with a brain said, that's a fucking nonsense argument. Um, <laughs> and basically, so did the District Court for the Southern District of New York. And so did the Second Circuit on Appeal. And then uh, the Supreme Court in July. And now, mind you, right, this is all... Pretty that, that 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 is moving at the speed of light for, you know, for a a, a, a judicial determination. The Supreme Court ruled in July uh, that although the president could assert the normal defenses available to any person resisting a subpoena, he didn't get superpowers because he was the president. Right. And that was a seven to two decision. Right. This was not close. Um, yes, that was still in the RBG days, but um, it it was still not at all close. Um, I came on your show that day to say, look, um, it mean this means that Cy Vance could potentially see Trump's taxes before the November election. Now, we know that it didn't quite happen that way, but but I want to remind people how close we got right. It went back down for a hearing on the defenses available to ordinary people, which shocker just as i said your ordinary people defenses are really really not good right like by and large people have to comply with subpoenas that are issued by grand juries right
0: yeah and as soon as we read it we're like this isn't gonna win either
1: yeah and and so uh again same proceeding district court said yep we've heard it we've listened uh Trump tried to amend. I, there was like a bunch of garbage, but basically uh, the district court was like no Peru, went up to the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit said no Peru. Um, and then on October 13th, that's when Trump appealed to the Supreme Court. But. Um, filed a, a, a petition for writ of certiorari, um, and also separately moved for an emergency order staying the Second Circuit's judgment, right? And you have to do that because otherwise, presumptively, like, court decisions take effect once they're ruled, right? Um, and so his standard was the same that you would need to meet to get an injunction, right? That is, you have to show irreparable harm. Which he had a decent argument on, right? It it you have to show that, that that um this can't be fixed. And the idea that like you couldn't put the genie back in the bottle once somebody has seen your tax records of criming. probably good point. Um, although not not sure how much you want to lean into that one. Um. Yeah, well, I mean,
0: you and I kind of trashed the irreparable harm thing by saying these weren't being released to the public. They were being released to a grand yep.
1: jury. And, and and that was the counter argument was grand juries keep it confidential. Um, there was some case law that basically says, yeah, but, you know prosecutors aren't always the most tightly lipped whatever it wasn't a ridiculous argument on irreparable harm where it was ridiculous was on uh likelihood of success on the merits which was zero right yeah. their position was <laughs> utterly without legal merit and you have to balance those two things right like the more likely you are to win the less the showing of irreparable harm and vice it's versa. weighted right yeah it's weighted. exactly right um so sy vance struck a deal and this is a deal that I would have taken at the time. Um, basically, said, "Okay, look, while you're briefing this to the Supreme Court, we won't enforce the subpoena, um, but we want an expedited briefing schedule, right?" And they did. They they, they they the 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 motion was filed on the 13th, and all briefing was concluded on the 19th, right? So again, that is making lawyers work overtime on the weekend, right? And. The weird thing was then it just sat. And despite being seven to so, so, so bear with me on October 20th, the Supreme Court could have said nope, which is which is what they did today. Right. But instead, they sat on it for four months. Um, One might infer a John Roberts related. We don't want to influence the election. I don't know. Um, But. It went until today, and today the Supreme Court said we are not <laughs> we're not granting the quote emergency relief you requested four months ago. Uh and again, this is a 9-0, right? There are no written dissents. It's a hundred percent straightforward. There is still the case on the merits that the Supreme Court will have the opportunity to review. Um, but uh Mazars is going to turn over those documents. They said that they will. There's now nothing to stop. Sy uh, Vance's office from enforcing them, um, and uh, and and he can now move uh, with respect to enforcing the subpoena. Meaning that at long last, <laughs> the grand jury will see Trump's personal and corporate tax records. But you have some beans.
0: I sure do. I sure do, Andrew. And here's here's my beans. If you look at the subpoena, it says it asks for three things: tax returns and related schedules in draft as filed and amended form. It also asks for any and all statements of financial condition, annual statements, periodic financial reports, and independent auditor's reports prepared, compiled, reviewed, or audited by Mazar's USA LLP or its predecessor, Wiser Mazar's LLP. And third, regardless of time period, any and all engagement agreements or contracts related to the preparation, compilation, review, or auditing of the documents described in items A and B. Now, we know from public reporting that we reported uh, over on our show that Vance has had documents production coming from Deutsche Bank for over a year. We also know that there's no way he doesn't have the state tax returns from New York State, and he's had them for a long time. We also have the New York Times indelible reporting, who who got a hold of their tax returns and uh, was looking at those as well. Those Those three things say to me that Vance kept this Mazar's case going. If he was only after the tax documents or if he could have gotten it from where he already, from documents he already has, he would have dropped this suit. He was like, I'm wasting my time. He didn't. Uh, oh, and by the way, shout out to those who don't trust Cy Vance. Uh, if If you think he would have hung around and done this much work... <laughs> And uh, expanded the investigation and stayed in this court battle with Mazars for two years and subpoenaed a a property tax firm this week and then hired Pomerantz, a a former U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York. If you think that he would have, he's thinking of dropping this case and he would not have done any of that. So you can get that idea out of your head. Now, here's what I think. I don't think he's looking. There was some sort of, and I said this, God, I said this a year ago. There's some sort of smoke and gun document that they think Mazars has that could help prove intent, right? Because, Andrew, you have even said that, uh, and I've, I've talked to Ellie Honig too, that a defense could be hey, I'm the CEO. I don't get involved at that level. My tax accountants are responsible for that. My lawyers told me it was okay. I was under the impression it was fine because my accountants said it was fine. But if there's some sort of memo, or amended tax return, or letter of intent to file, or something from Mazars, their his accounting firm, recommending, hey, maybe don't take that easement deduction on Seven Springs Estates because you use it as private land, or hey, maybe you're, uh, you know, I've noticed here that you're valuation of your property is is different than uh, what it's registered at with Zillow. I don't know. Some sort of a memo to Trump or the Trump organization saying, uh, I'm warning you, this isn't legit. And, and Trump says to go ahead and file it anyway. That is the kind of documentation I think. And, that, and I have no proof of this other than what I've told you based on my speculation. That's what I think Vance is waiting for from Mazar's. And I mean, so I I think that's super, I, I think that is
1: very, it is a very lawyerly approach to what would count as a smoking gun. And let's sort of spin this out a little bit. If you had two separate tax returns, right? If you had a draft tax return for 2014 that differed wildly from the, the actual form that was filed in 2014, then even in the absence of the smoking gun email, right, that's a signal to Vance to, to subpoena a witness and to bring in the person who prepared that tax return, whose signature name will be at the bottom, and to say, hey, um, you prepared the draft, right? Yeah, this was it. And you prepared this according to the best of your abilities and with information provided to you by Donald J. Trump. Uh-huh. And you gave it to him. And then what happened? <laughs> Why did you change it? And that person will have every incentive to say, well, the person who told me to change it told me that X were the facts, right? Like, I, it, there's that you will get the situation because Donald Trump, because you know what Donald Trump is going to say, right? Donald Trump is going to say I- exactly what you predicted that he was going to. Uh, uh, that's just, that's what the accountants do. That's what they did. And, uh, you know, and they said that this was the right way to approach it and, um and, and getting somebody to flip on Trump, because if they do nothing, right, then, they're now the ones, right? Like somebody changed that tax return.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Mazars is going to have on file to protect and cover their own asses any letters that they sent to the Trump organization or exactly. any subsidiary thereof saying, We don't recommend that you, for example, take the easement deduction on Seven Springs Estates. <laughs> we are going to go ahead and file on your discretion. We waive liability for this. Sign below that exists if, if in fact that's what happens and uh, Mazars will be more than happy to provide that information because they're not going to they're not going to take a bullet for for Donald on Fifth Avenue no way
1: I couldn't agree more couldn't have said it better myself so I won't say anything else
0: All right sweet well we have some more information from Scotus uh, We mm-hmm. do have to take a quick break so uh, everybody hang out we'll be right back Hey, everybody. It's AG for Clean Up on Isle 45. Do you ever listen to the podcast and want to scream your opinions at us or just sing to us or ask us questions? Well, now you can. We are going live on the Stereo app where you can ask us your questions directly. So join us for the Clean Up on Aisle 45 after-party Q&A. We have uncensored opinions, exclusive content, And it's all only available on the Stereo app. I love the Stereo app. I'm on the app talking all the time. Follow me and get notified every time I go live. You can follow me at Allison Gill. And we take deep dives into a variety of topics and we interact directly with you. And so you download the Stereo app, it's free, and you, then you follow me at Stereo.com slash Allison Gill. So actually, go to Stereo.com slash Allison Gill to set up an account. It's free to do. Uh, there's a link in the description of the show, too. Then join us over on the Stereo app. The Stereo app has thousands of live social conversations, a wide range of genres. It's not just us. There's a, oh, tons of conversations going on. News, comedy, sports, and all, just everything. And you choose whether you can be a co-host or host. Or participate as a guest, or just listen on exclusive conversations. So join uh, Andrew and me every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Stereo app, and you can look for Andrew at Torres and me at Allison Gill. We'll see you there. All right, everybody, welcome back. Couple other things going on with the Supreme Court today, Andrew. What, what were some of the other cases that were that had decisions? And I, I, do you call them decisions or actions? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so decisions on orders today. Right. Yep. So. Right. So granting cert, denying cert, uh, incomprehensible dissents that were written. So um,
0: we started off with some good news. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. Oh, and I did want to cl- make one thing clear, too, because a lot of folks are wondering, oh, great. The public is going to get to see these tax returns. That's not. How it works. These tax returns are going to go directly to the grand jury. However, if there is a speaking indictment or any crimes indicted, you will find out (laughs) what it was that was a crime. Uh, Don't worry. (laughs) Yep.
1: That is exactly right. And and trials are public. (laughs) Yes, So, you know, unless uh, Donald Trump plea bargains, which strikes me as super duper unlikely in a case like this, um, that 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 information will get out to us at some point. So. All right. So that was all. That's the A block. Let's leave that behind. That was good news about the Supreme Court. Now, let me throw a big bucket of cold water on you. Remind you that two thirds of the Supreme Court, six votes are. Lifelong, hidebound, hard right conservatives, and yes, that includes Chief Justice Roberts in, as the so called center. And five of the nine are unambiguously on board with using the court as a naked vehicle for right wing judicial activism. That's what we call the Howler Monkey contingent over at Opening Arguments Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett. But, A.G., among the Howler Monkeys, who's the howleriest? Scalia? Scalia will always be the ghost of Scalia. Thomas, it's
0: it's 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 Justice Thomas.
1: (sighs) Yeah, it's if were it not for the only argument against Thomas and his closest competitor is Sam Alito, right? The only argument against Clarence Thomas is that when it comes to voting rights cases, uh, in which the open criterion was suppression of african-american votes which happens a terrifying amount of times um you know where public officials will say like no 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 you don't understand we don't want the n-words voting right like that happens in real cases um other than clarence thomas joining in on those sorts of cases um it's thomas Today's Supreme Court orders confirm his widening lead over Sam Alito as the howleriest of the howler monkey contingent. Here are, here are the two cases where the Supreme Court denied cert today. They were private citizen election cases. They're captioned Republican Party of Pennsylvania versus Veronica de DeGraffenried, the acting secretary of Pennsylvania, and Jake Corman. And I don't know who Jake Corman is, but versus the Pennsylvania Democratic Party at all case numbers. 20-542 and 20-574. You know shake. Yeah. <laughs> They're part of what I've called mm. the rat fucking mm. cases in Pennsylvania, okay? And and what happened here was and I came on your show to talk about this, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, okay, upheld state board of elections regulations that said, "Hey, since you know we live in a plague-infested hellhole dystopia, when you're mailing in your ballots, we can count ballots that are postmarked by Election Day, but received up to three days later. And again, with what Louis DeJoy did with the USPS, those could have been mailed a month earlier, mm-hmm. two months earlier. Um, that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, this was Amy Coneybert was on the court, but took no part in this initial consideration. Um, so the court split four to four and basically said we'll see. We'll do nothing. We're not going to disturb your ruling, Pennsylvania Supreme Court, but we do want you to segregate the mail-in ballots that you received after Election Day and keep them separate from the ones that you received on or before Election Day. And look, you do not have to be a conspiracy theorist to see what the hell was going on there, right? If Biden had won by a smaller margin in Pennsylvania, right, he won by 80,000 votes, 1.15%, right? But if it had been a much smaller margin, and if Pennsylvania had been the margin of victory in the Electoral College, then the Howler Monkey contingent was very clearly protecting their right to basically overturn yep. the election.
0: If yeah, it, it, but it, it was a thing, right, where if, if the segregated mail-in ballots would not have made a difference in either the Pennsylvania numbers or the national numbers, then it would be mooted?
1: Yeah, yeah, you would think, right? And, it, and that is, in fact, what six— but only 6 supreme court justices have thought. Oh
0: my god, cuz you and I thought it was going to be mooted by like unanimously. Uh
1: I I would have wagered any amount of money that this would have been a 9-0. Um it was not and we're going to get to that. Um but uh to to take your catchphrase, we actually did vote in numbers too big for them to manipulate. Indeed. Um it 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 um, Just barely. (laughs) Uh, If Biden had lost Georgia, that's, as we all know, 11,779 votes. And then either Arizona, which he won by 10,000, or the Omaha Congressional District, which he won by 22,000, then we would have been in the rat fuck scenario, Mm -hmm. right? And it would have gone back to the Supreme Court. Biden could have won by seven million votes. And we would have potentially been looking at a Bush v. Gore, two in front of this Supreme Court. So that's terrifying. Do not let up.
0: No. Right. We
1: have to vote in numbers.
0: Too big. We warned of that, yep. too. Right. Well, I didn't see it coming down to the segregated ballots coming in after, you know, Election Day and and having that number be smaller than the Biden victory. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I was absolutely terrified that if it were very close with the Howler 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 Monkey contingency in the Supreme Court, that we would have ended up with another Brooks Brothers riot.
1: Yeah. Um, So, good news. That didn't happen. And so today... The slightly less howlerier contingent, right, teamed up with the grownups on the court to reject the cert petitions in the Pennsylvania ratfuck cases because, duh, they're obviously moot, right? But as I previewed for you, there were three dissents. Well, there were there were two dissents, three dissenting justices, right? Right. One was from Alito and Gorsuch, and it claims that these cases aren't really moot under a a really narrow standing doctrine called capable of repetition, yet otherwise evading review. Um, And let me explain, like that doctrine, pretty much the only cases in which you see it applied are abortion cases. Right. Because if you would say, well, you know. Sorry, took three years for us to hear your appeal. And, you know, the the gestational age of a fetus is 40 weeks. So, you know, you would then never have a plaintiff or you would never have a party be able to get Supreme Court review on any abortion case because, you know. People do not carry fetuses for three years, right? So. That's why, and I can't come up with, other than abortion cases, I can't come up with another case in which the Supreme Court, I know there are, I don't mean to suggest it's only an abortion doctrine, but I do mean to suggest it's a super narrow doctrine for standing, right? Usually you have to show something structural that means why we can't consider this if it ever comes up again. So, okay. That's the argument being made in the Alito-Gorsuch dissent, that every time we have an election, this might come up, and it'll be too late, and so we ought to just decide it now. It's a bad argument, um, but it's not a criminally insane argument.
0: Wow. That's six. Wow. Uh, Okay. But I haven't
1: gotten to the bad part yet. Are you ready? Are you ready for the bad? part? Yep,
0: I'm ready for the bad part.
1: So uh, this is the Clarence Thomas, um, you know, incomprehensible dissent. And 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 I want to try and convey to you just how bad this opinion is. Right. So um, something that left, right and center, everybody pretty much agrees on for better or for worse, is that unless the state is violating core constitutional rights, States have wide latitude in how they run their elections. Right. And look, Republicans have been taking advantage of that for 70 years in deep red states to disenfranchise voters who look an awful lot like Clarence Thomas. Right. Um, But. That's not good enough for the Republicans anymore, because Republicans are so deeply unpopular, they're losing everywhere across the country, that it's not enough for them to just rig elections in states that have red governors, red state legislators, and red Supreme Courts. There's not enough of those states anymore. The math doesn't add up. So this cycle saw a number of conflicts in purple states, like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, where gerrymandered conservative state legislatures, right, would pass laws trying to restrict voting during a fucking pandemic. And then Democratic governors would step in and Democratic executive agencies would say, all right, that's, that's all true, but in the case of COVID-19, we're gonna give you three extra days. We're gonna liberalize our mail-in requirements, that sort of thing. And then it would go up to the state Supreme Court for a final determination, is that a valid exercise of the executive's powers over our state laws, right? And you would think the party of federalism, the party of let the states figure it out, would be happy with that result.
0: Yeah, but so many of their lawsuits were like, no, it has to be decided by the legislature. It can't be decided by the Supreme Court of that state. It has to be by the legislature. That's what the Constitution says. And
1: that position, the idea that the U.S. Supreme Court would tell a state Supreme Court that its interpretation of its state laws is inappropriate would would cause our slave owning founding fathers to rise up zombie like from the graves with torches and pitchforks.
0: Well, isn't this isn't this dividing by zero? Because, I mean, you're saying, no, the state Supreme Court can't. It's only the state legislature says me, the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's it's. I like the dividing by zero analogy because I, I can't come up with anything. It else.
0: makes my head explode. Like it, it should. You just told me that the only people who can set our rules are, are the state legislatures, and you just set that rule, and you're not, you're not the state legislature. Yeah. No, it's like that old episode of Star Trek. Your right? pubic hair on the Coke can guy. You're not my state legislature. Yeah.
1: It, here's Clarence Thomas's argument. I want to quote him directly. Quote. The Constitution gives each state legislature authority to determine the, quote, manner of federal elections. Article one, section four. Yet both before and after the 2020 election, non-legislative officials in various states took it upon themselves to set the rules instead. As a result, we received an unusually high number of petitions contesting those changes. These cases provide us with an ideal opportunity to address just what authority non-legislative officials have to set election rules. Who the fuck are you to do that for the state of Pennsylvania? And, and
0: where, what happened to, we're just calling balls and strikes here? I have an answer for Clarence Thomas. The answer okay. is... Not you, bro. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's who. Yeah. Not you. It this is not the
1: standard the Supreme Court has used in any of the Voting Rights Act cases, as you might imagine. It only became a thing because Trump's arguments in these cases were so bad that even deep red such state Supreme Courts were like, uh, we're not touching this, Sidney
0: Powell. Go away. Nine Trump appointed judges <laughs> in district yeah. and appellate court were like, Yep. Nah, nah. Yeah.
1: It, it's it's terrible. So Thomas's position got got one vote <laughs> and and that's a good. Right. But but look, it is significant when an argument this bad gets set down in writing, even in a dissent that is just one vote. Right. This is something that future cases will be able to cite in a dissent as if this were a reasonable construction of the law. And it is not. Oh, and. Can I also add Clarence Thomas said a whole bunch of other terrible stuff, in his opinion, that makes me think he's a QAnon supporter who listens to Newsmax on Continuous Loop?
0: Well, his wife helped bus a bunch of people to the insurrection rally. So, I mean, he's got he's got to go.
1: He's got to uh, go. Uh, he's he's got to go. He he writes and and I'll spare you the full and exact quotes but but he has a long screed about how voting by mail has quote become more permissive end of quote and uh that expansion impedes post-election judicial review because litigation about mail-in ballots is substantially more complicated for one thing as election administrators have long agreed the risk of fraud is vastly more prevalent for mail-in ballots
0: hang on i've got my pearls hold on i've got (laughs) <laughs> I've got my pearls right here. Oh gosh. Let me clutch them real quick. Ah,
1: uh, I, 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 I love that you have the actual pearls right there. That is, uh, that is so you. Um, that citation to fraud being vastly more prevalent for mail-in ballots is, of course, to an opinion piece in the New York Times. It's right? A big lie. Um, it, it, of course, it's a lie. But it is now a lie written down in a, an actual dissent signed by an actual Supreme Court justice. It gets I want to say it gets worse. And here's the worse. At the end, quote, in short, the post-election system of judicial review is at most suitable for garden variety disputes. It is often incapable of testing allegations of systematic maladministration, voter suppression or fraud that go to the heart of public confidence in election results. And you're going to say you're going to say, oh, you're not telling me that Clarence Thomas thinks the election was stolen. I'm going to tell you it's worse than that. I'm going to read. And again, these are word for words. What Clarence Thomas wrote in print at the United States Supreme Court, quote, this is obviously problematic for allegations backed by substantial evidence. But the same is true where allegations are incorrect. After all, confidence in the integrity of our electoral process is essential to the functioning of our participatory democracy. So, yes, that is Clarence Thomas saying, look, even if they're making it up, even if there's zero evidence behind any of these claims, the fact that they've made the claims is why the Supreme Court should adjust, should should deal with them. This is mind boggling to see even Clarence Thomas saying something like this. I
0: don't even... I don't even get it. I'm with you. (laughs) He's saying, even though I'm lying, uh, you could believe it, and therefore, mail-in voting can be fraudulent. And
1: an incorrect allegation left to fester without a robust mechanism to test and disprove it. Now, why... The state Supreme Court telling you no is not a robust mechanism is left unsaid.
0: Or 64 losses yeah. in court.
1: Drives honest citizens out of the democratic process and breeds distrust of our government. So in other words, this is the Ted Cruz position now written into the law like i'm not saying there's evidence but i'm saying the fact that people think there's evidence means that people don't trust the government means that we need the supreme court to step in it's insane
0: ladies and gentlemen i would like to welcome you to the newest agency the fourth branch of government it's called the perception supreme court everybody (laughs) Welcome. See here, facts don't matter. Perception is nine tenths of the law. Next up on the docket uh, is the sky blue. No, Bill thinks it's red, and perception is nine tenths of the law. Moving on to the next case.
1: I, I want to get T-shirts made that says "Perception is nine tenths of the law." <laughs> <laughs> oh. I,
0: that's my new ad lib game show. I just came up with it yeah. off the top of my head. I, love I think it. it's great. I think I think Perception Supreme Court is uh is where Clarence Thomas sits. Yeah.
1: There are no fabulous prizes, though.
0: Mm, no you win Supreme voter Court. suppression and a yeah. uh, trail outside of democracy. Welcome. Uh, of course, Mike Lee is all good with that. He thinks democracy is rank and the opponent of liberty. But you know. It, it, look,
1: I did not expect we would be headed that way that quickly but i think republicans are just good enough at math to know that if it's ever subject to a a straight popular vote ever again that their that their position is not tenable so
0: uh gonna get worse before it gets better yeah well the pendulum has to swing, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. Just that that arc of the moral universe is long, and justice grinds uh, slow, right, as we know. I miss her. I know, me too. Speaking of Mike Lee, he had some really fantastic questions today from Merrick Garland. During the Attorney General confirmation hearings, it started in the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is no longer chaired by Lindsey Graham. Sorry, (laughs) you burnt. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about the Merrick Garland confirmation hearings right after this quick break. So stay with us. Hey everybody, it's AG. Calling all cereal lovers, this one is for you. This segment of Cleanup on Aisle 45 is brought to you by Magic Spoon, a cereal so delicious you will not believe it's healthy. I have been a huge cereal fan my whole life. I used to plop down in front of Saturday morning cartoons, eat like a whole box pretty much, and then drink the delicious milk afterwards. But as an adult, I've been avoiding it because of all of the chemicals and sugar and carbs, just stuff I don't want in my body. But magic spoon is different it's so delicious you will not believe it's made without all the sugar carbs or guilt and forbes magazine says with cereal that tastes this good and offers so much nutritional value as opposed to well none magic spoon may be the future of breakfast and i couldn't agree more magic spoon cereals amazingly have zero sugar 12 grams of protein and only three net grams of carbs in each serving it is deep breath keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, high-protein, and GMO-free. And the best part, it's really, really delicious. It is like, it's so good. And they have four amazing flavors, vintage to the core, right? They got cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry and it tastes incredible, honestly too good to be true, but it is real. My favorite flavor right now is blueberry. It is so yummy. I even snack on it dry uh, as a treat. It's just it's delicious and it's healthy and nutritious and it's guilt-free. So, go to magicspoon.com/cleanup to grab a variety pack you can try all four flavors today. Be sure to use our promo code cleanup at checkout to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product and so am I that it is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So, if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund all your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com/cleanup and use code CLEANUP for free shipping. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast.
1: And we're back from the break. And, A.G., just as we were about to leave, you teased our listeners with the only person who calls Ted Cruz a friend, Mike Lee. Um, <laughs> what what the heck guy, happened with him?
0: The guy who goes to the, uh, uh, the Ted Cruz... Uh, Emporium of vampire haircuts Um, (laughs) the, the, The Ted Cruz Rush Limbaugh Emporium of vampire haircuts Yeah, he was uh, asking today uh, questions of, well, first of all, Merrick Garland, awesome, incredible uh, job today. Uh, I can't, but he batted a thousand. Uh, Most of the things the Republicans wanted to talk about were uh, the Russia hoax and uh, nominees that they don't like that Joe Biden has put up. And, uh, you know, Mike Lee specifically was treating Merrick Garland like he was there for a Supreme Court nomination, asking him what he thinks of the Second Amendment and how he would read this decision (laughs) and how he would read that decision. And I'm like, fucking dude. (laughs) Do you know what the attorney general does? (laughs) Yeah. And then he had to explain to him in a case uh, regarding gun stuff. He had to explain to him what an en banc hearing was and what merits were. And it was just it was uh, painful to watch and absolutely uh, disingenuous, uh, which most of the Republican questions were. There were some good Republican questions, most of them not so good. But uh, there, there seems to there seems to be some support among Republicans uh for advancing Merrick Garland out of the Judiciary Committee. I think Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn of Texas uh will likely vote for his advancement out of that out of that committee. But that those are just beans.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree with that and I think when he comes to the to the full Senate, I think I think Merrick Garland gets seventy plus votes.
0: I, I concur. And there were a couple of standout moments today. The opening statement, we, you know, we we got the opening statement early. We all read the opening statement. He delivered it and he, he promised to keep the Justice Department independent. And he did this not only in his opening statement, but, uh, you know, under questioning, particularly uh, Ted Cruz, who <laughs> asked him whether he'd be Biden's wingman, which was a dig at a 2013 comment from Barack Obama about Eric Holder. And uh, Garland responded, I'll do everything in my power, which I believe is considerable, (laughs) to fend off any effort by anyone to make prosecutions or investigations partisan or political in any way. My job is to protect the Department of Justice and its employees in going about their job and doing the right thing according to the facts and the law. And I imagine that career prosecutors, line professionals, lawyers and, and employees of the Department of Justice today were just in tears watching this.
1: Cheered, applauding the TV. Yeah. This is why I will never be appointed uh, to to, you know, nominated to be attorney general of the Supreme Court, because if I'd gotten that question from Ted Cruz, I would have stood up, looked him in the eye and said, Bill Barr! Yeah. Bill Barr! And my answer to every single fucking question would just be like, no, did you see the monster we
0: had in here for the past two years? H- how long have you been in Cancun,
1: uh, Yeah, Mr. I, Cruz? I, you're asking me about a joke about being the wingman from somebody who omitted the word not in his summary of the Mueller report in order to protect his buddy, the president? Are you fucking kidding me? From somebody who appeared as the president's personal lawyer for two years and Brought shame and disrepute to this office. Are you fucking kidding me? Um, this is why I am not uh, uh, Joe Biden's nominee for the attorney general. But, you know, <laughs> uh, I think it should be.
0: <laughs> now, uh, Chuck Grassley, Mr. Pigeon of Iowa, actually asked Garland whether he'd spoken to Biden about his son's case. I guess because, uh, well, you know, uh, Trump spoke to Barr uh, about a lot of his friends' cases. So it stands to reason. And and Garland was like, no, no. No, I have not. The president made it clear in every public statement before and after my nomination that decisions about investigations and prosecutions will be left to the Justice Department. That was the reason I was willing to take this job.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. You appear to have mistaken me for Jared Kushner, who vetted every single thing that the...
0: I know. I know you're angry. It's all right. It was a really nice... It was. Yeah, that's for the. (laughs) Sorry. It was healing today. It was healing today. Now, Garland also prioritized investigating the siege on the Capitol, which he also did in his opening remarks when he was nominated uh, a little while back. Senator Whitehouse uh, encouraged Garland to look upstream and not rule out investigations of funders, organizers, ringleaders, or aiders and abettors who were not present at the Capitol (laughs) on January 6th, who were not present at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, We begin with the people, he said, and and Merrick Garland said, yeah, we begin with the people on the ground. We work our way up to those who were involved and further involved. We will pursue these leads wherever they take us. I
1: I thought it was encouraging in light of The somewhat unexpected and I think totally appropriate and very, very smart decision by the House managers to highlight the role of organizations like the Proud Boys in coordinating uh, the 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 January 6th insurrection. And I I take this as an indication that right wing extremism, sorry, that combating right wing extremism is on the agenda of the Merrick Garland DOJ, as it, as it should be.
0: Right. Well, uh, Biden put Josh Geltzer, yep. uh, a friend and guest of ours, in charge of assessing the need to develop policy regarding domestic violent extremism. They they call it the DVE, right? And uh, it's definitely a priority. And it, Garland made it clear today that, that uh, investigating the insurrection was his top priority, as a matter of fact. I mean, aside from, you know, remaining independent and not being a wingman, Ted Cruz, Cancun Cruz. So that was, uh, I thought, uh, an interesting exchange, too. Uh, Garland also talked about changing his views on the death penalty since the Oklahoma City bombing, and I thought that this was really good. He said Monday uh, that, well, that's, to, I just want to let you know because this show comes out Wednesday, and this this happened on Monday, Garland said he did not regret the execution of the perpetrator, Tim McVeigh, but he said that he had developed concerns about the death penalty in the 20 years since then. Uh, Due to some exonerations of those convicted, the arbitrariness and randomness of its application and its disparate impact on black Americans and other minority communities. Those are things that give me pause. So I thought that was really interesting. And he also said if Biden ordered a moratorium on the death penalty, then it would apply to all cases. But in response to a question from Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Garland said he had not yet considered whether to recommend to Biden an across-the-board commutation of death row inmates to reduce their sentences to life in prison. Yeah. Let's again point out
1: that Uh, The moratorium that was lifted by Donald Trump on federal executions was put into place under the George W. Bush administration in 2003 that often some of the earliest and most vocal proponents of a moratorium on the death penalty uh, came from Republicans who looked at the facts on the ground. And, And look how you weigh the disparate impact point probably is a red blue issue how you weigh the unarguable high unacceptably high rate of coerced convictions uh, i think crosses party lines and i think i look at like the innocence project and the number of folks that we have ironclad um exculpatory testimony uh, in the form of of uh, of DNA testing that, you know, proves that they were elsewhere at the time the crime was committed. And and they've been able to prove numbers in the teens right in the like 10 to 15 percent range, which when you think about proving a negative, right, is uh, strongly suggestive of a system that's broken.
0: Yeah. Well, and now that you're going to start seeing with, with some of the decisions, narrow as they have been, uh, that people are going to start getting more access to the ballot. Uh, we could start look at the, looking at passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act if we, if we would only change the budget reconciliation rules to circumvent the filibuster. Uh, now that, that people have gotten access to the ballot... And they have tasted the, the 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 right to vote, where they had maybe perhaps been suppressed or oppressed in the past. It's hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube, and and this might sound a little extreme, but the Republicans have long uh, relied on small time felonies to put away and to incarcerate people of color and communities of color to take away and strip their right to vote. And I think that you're going to see an amplification uh, uh, including uh, and up to and including the death penalty of that kind of mass incarceration. You're going to see this battle, I think going on now because that's really now the only one of, now that you know we've gotten access to the ballot or more access to the ballot, I should say we're not anywhere near where we should be. But now that we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, they're going to really push, I think, really hard on on really tough. Uh, Let me let's just say mass incarceration to to try to limit the the Democratic voting community. I think they're going to start looking at that, and I think that's why Garland got all these questions um, today about that, and I think that's why you're seeing some of the stuff come out of Clarence Thomas's mouth as well.
1: I uh, I hope you're wrong, but fear you're right.
0: Yeah. Well. All we can do is is keep fighting right now, uh garland on the Durham probe <laughs> <sighs> and here's what's interesting it, it would have been super simple for him to commit to not to fire not firing Durham, yeah right uh but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't commit to not firing Durham, but says he sees no reason that the Durham investigation wouldn't go forward. Uh, Tom Cotton pressed Garland to explain why he couldn't pledge to give Durham the resources he needed. Ted Cruz, you know, hammered him for a long time. Why can't you, you know, Barr promised not to fire Mueller, or no, Sessions promised not to fire Mueller. Why can't you promise not to fire Durham? And he's like, look, (laughs) he's like, look, just no, I'm not going to make any promises without having seen any facts, because that's how the independent justice department is supposed to operate. He said he needed to learn more about the investigation before he could make any commitments, but added he didn't have any reason to think that Durham should not remain in place, but he wouldn't commit to it. Yeah. Uh, It
1: isn't it refreshing (laughs) to have somebody who is a nominee for a major executive branch office to answer questions, honestly, (laughs) honestly,
0: Yeah, it is very nice.
1: I, I, I mean, yeah, because look, as we saw, right, that there there's nothing to stop Merrick Garland from just lying to these folks. Right. I, they're yeah, not going to the way Barr did. Yeah, exactly. They're not going to, you know, charge him with perjury. Um, But but I'm glad that our side doesn't do that. And I'm glad that while he's sitting there thinking like, well, I don't know, maybe it is nonsense. I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, not going to put my thumb on the scale, but no, I'm not. Who the hell are you, Tom Cotton, for me to <laughs> promise you wh- who I'm going to fire or not fire?
0: Yeah, Ted Cruz, do you promise me you won't leave again for Cancun? Or can I get a commitment out of you that yeah. you won't be a dick fucker for the rest of your life or not?
1: Nah? Well, you're not going to get that kind of commitment, so.
0: No, no. And uh, no offense to dick fuckers. I'm yeah, so- no,
1: I was going to go. say that... Uh, up
0: long and <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, uh, the moment of the day, yeah, for me was when um, Senator Cory Booker asked him, you know, tell us about why you're committed to being the kind of independent, fair, you know, uh, equal justice under the law attorney general. Feel free to use, you know, um, your family background, etc. <laughs> and the the response was just it's something that i think we will continue to see video of for many years into the future
1: i i i agree and i and i love that the the the, the trigger moment for Merrick Garland right in terms of becoming genuinely emotional crying real tears um had to do with what we used to call the american story right being a member of uh, a, a minority group that was kicked out of every nation in Eastern and Western Europe uh, and understanding the value of inclusiveness. Um, that did not used to be uh, the, the a, a blue state versus red state issue. It, it became as such under Donald Trump. And um, on my uh, more optimistic days, I like to think that, you know, Maybe, maybe that could become an American value again um it was also nice to see somebody in a confirmation hearing crying over something other than beer, so I thought that was good
0: um, <laughs> you, you don't do you drink Senator <laughs> yeah, I know he was he was talking about how his his grandparents immigrated and he, they were persecuted um and uh America protected them and welcomed them. And it would be his greatest honor to pay that back by by being the attorney general you think I can become. And that's that humility. Just it was stunning and it was uh, just a remarkable moment. Absolutely remarkable moment. All right. Well, uh, if you want to see video of that, by the way, uh, we'll put that, we can probably stick that up on the, on the, pa- on the, the, Patreon page. Right. And yeah. you can also get it on our, uh, get it on my Twitter feed. If you, if you follow at Muller, she wrote, or, uh, I, I tweeted it out from there and from my, from my personal account, Allison Gill, I was just totally stunned and, and floored by the, the absolute beauty of that moment. So I would check it out if you get a chance. It's only about a minute long. Um, uh, We will be right back because we have some people to say bye-bye to. So <laughs> uh, stick around and uh, we'll be right back after this break.
1: And now we get to what is quickly becoming my favorite segment on the show. Although, you know, we got to dig a little deeper each week. It's time for goodbye to you. (laughs) Yes,
0: it is. And we begin with the continued exodus of U.S. attorneys from the Department of Justice. Today, we learned that Ryan K. Patrick, lifelong Republican Party hack, the guy who was appointed to the bench by Rick Perry, and then named U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Texas by Trump in 2017, will resign effective February 28th. What's super gross about Patrick is that his departure press release, which he clearly wrote himself... Uh, Patrick praises himself as a prominent leader of the ever-increasing immigration debate.
1: Yeah, that uh, announced that he was proud of the resources he diverted to border cases, his 96% conviction rate, and the fact that his office charged 25,000 defendants during his three-year stint as U.S. attorney. So, bye bye Joining Patrick, and I mean, look, we can't do all these guys individually, are... Matthew G.T. Martin of the Middle District of North Carolina. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Michael Bailey, Arizona. Bye-bye. Jason Dunn from Colorado. You burnt. Kenji Price of Hawaii.
0: Bye bye.
1: Ron Parsons from South Dakota. Bye bye. And Donald Q. Cochran of the Middle District of Tennessee. And I mentioned Q not just because of the Q middle name, but that's the only way you can find him on Wikipedia. Um, not a whole <laughs> lot to know about most of these guys, but hey, they were Trump appointees. So, uh, bye bye.
0: Bye bye. Goodbye to you. And now <laughs> that Biden is president, we can also restock the bench so connecticut governor ned lamont announced late last week that he was appointing three assistant u.s attorneys michael gustafson gordon hall and nitty moses for judgeships of the connecticut superior court good luck to those future judges and a rare sincere goodbye from us yeah and finally this is a great story
1: so uh you previously broke in episode number one, how Biden on day one dismissed the Trump appointed CEO for the U.S. Agency for Global Media, Michael Pack. Uh, Pack is a real scumbag who faced complaints from more than 30 whistleblowers during his tenure as head of the USAGM. And true to Trumpian form, Pack's response was to fire the whistleblowers and retaliate against anyone in the agency whom he perceived as being insufficiently pro-Trump. So glad he's gone.
0: Right. Bye-bye. And now we've learned that Biden isn't just sacking PAC. He's bringing back the previously fired high-level whistleblowers, including Deputy Director of Operations Matt Walsh, Chief Strategy Officer Sean Powers, Chief Financial Officer Grant Turner, General Counsel David Kilgerman, I believe is how you say that, and executive director Owen Tran and Bei Fang, head of Radio Free Asia.
1: Yeah, um, let's see. Already done, Patty Smythe, so maybe this needs the uh, theme from Welcome Back, Cotter? Welcome back. There we go. (laughs)
0: Welcome back. Welcome back. Yeah. Wonderful. So, comings and goings. It's nice to say bye-bye, but it's good to say hello. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) All right, well, that I think wraps us up for uh, episode six this week of Clean Up on Al 45. I would highly recommend you check out Opening Arguments with Andrew, and you can check out my other show, The Daily Beans with Dana Goldberg. Uh, and of course, I would love if you could join Andrew and me every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Stereo app. It is a free app. Just download it. Go to stereo.com slash Gill. Uh, search for myself and Andrew Torres. You can ask us questions, have an adult beverage or a non-adult beverage, whatever your gig is. And uh, we'll be there singing, having a good time. Sometimes we dance. Who knows? A lot of a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of weird stuff. Yeah.
1: Follow. She's at Allison Gill. And I am at Torres. T-O-R-R-E-Z. Apparently, I was the first Torres. They led on to stereo. So Ooh-oh. I was happy
0: with that. <laughs> You're an early adopter. At adapter. least with a Z
1: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah at least with the C right <laughs> everyone goes Are you sure you're spelling that right I'm like yeah pretty sure
1: <laughs> when I get that question and I get it not infrequently it's <laughs> I get to launch into the story of how my grandfather when he emigrated here knew that the s sound in Spanish was going to be like the z sound and yeah but Yeah, Yeah, well, that's it. We're done,
0: (laughs) Mr. Torres. Any final thoughts before we, uh, before we hang it up?
1: Nope. As always, uh, love doing the show with you, and uh, can't can't wait till we uh, get to do the next one.
0: It's been a pleasure, and I can't wait for uh, what was the the new Supreme Court game show. (laughs) perception supreme court the
1: perception supreme court yeah
0: perception supreme court where perception is nine tenths of the law hosted (laughs) by judge clarence thomas (laughs) it's gonna be a good time thank you so much i've been ag
1: i'm at have a good one
0: and we'll see you next week on cleanup on L 45 Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres and is engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Audio. Fact-checking and research by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with quality assurance and media by Muller She Wrote, LLC. Branding, design, and logo by Starburns Audio and Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our copy is written by Jesse Egan. Our music is written and recorded by Adam Orr and Christopher Hoffey and our opening sequence is designed by Allison Gill and mixed by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Audio. Follow us on Twitter at Aisle 45 Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss our cleanup on aisle 45 after party on the stereo app. We'll be going live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 Eastern, and we want to hear from you. Our last stereo show went a little bit like this. Uh, I'll hit the button now. That's good. Hi there. Hey, I need a reality reality check, and maybe after all we've been through in the past four to five years, that is more than reasonable. But I'm worried that I'm being a little paranoid here because I can't shake this feeling that the Axio story about the Offer Rails meeting that was... That, the, uh, that that accident your story was planted to try to polish Trump's role in the insurrection to remove some of the culpability for Trump believing the big lie to move some of the blame off of Trump believing that he could fight for staying in the presidency well, on to Powell maybe to claim that he was not at fault for his statements that the election was stolen and inciting the red insurrection or to create some doubt about his guilt anyway what are your thoughts about this and by the way I loved hearing Torres say the word fuck. That was perfect. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alka. Yeah, uh, first of all, I, I, lots of media is planted. Um, <laughs> so to, to to get that story about the off-the-rails meeting with Powell, feeding him all these ideas and riling him up, could be a, a, a plausible deniability type uh, situation. I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? Uh, she's also just crazy. Stereo is the app for live social conversations. and We want to talk directly with you, the listeners. You can join our show, ask questions about news, politics, or anything. You can share your experiences and opinions. We want to hear it all. So download the app for free now and join us live this week, Tuesday at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. Link to our show in the description and join us over on the Stereo app.